Okay, so far we have seen when life collide, when races collide, when life is expendable, when circumstances overwhelm, when substances take over, and last Lord's Day we saw how when marriages is questioned, and today we're going to look at what materialism does, when materialism consumes. So let's look in our books to 142, page 142, and as usual, we'll begin with the first question, question number one. What's the first thing you remember buying with your own money? Remember that time when you earned your first paycheck? What do you remember buying with your own money? A dress. Okay. Okay, a bouquet for the person who got the job for you. Good. Okay, that was thoughtful. My first paycheck was seven pounds late in India. Pounds? Pounds? <laughs> <laughs> and I bought a dress, it was a, tr a, tr a trust address. It was nine pounds, and I put the seven pounds on it. Okay. Um, so they had credit all the way back then? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Anybody else? Okay. I spent last week's money. Oh, you spent last week's money? <laughs> in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Started at 14 spending my money. Mm. That's a long time in spending. <laughs> okay, let's look at Bible Meets Life. Someone could read that for us, please. Let's admit it. We enjoy the American lifestyle. We live well, relatively speaking. Even the bottom 10% of Americans fear yeah, far better than they would in other. Is that right? Yeah, in other countries. Yeah. They would in other countries. Even better than the top 10% in some nations. When the economy is good and we've got money, it feels only natural to spend it. Just when we want to cut back or save, the appetizers seem to clobber us with extra hype to convince us we need whatever they're selling. And when everybody else has it, it becomes even easier to make that next purchase. Consider. We buy food, certainly a necessity, then let's nearly let nearly 40% of it go to waste. That's the truth. Americans spend more on fashion accessories than on college tuition. Our children own nearly half the world's toys. True. Homes in the U.S. have more TVs than people. The average American household has 7,500 in consumer debt. The things we consume appear to be consuming us. God certainly wants us to enjoy life. But his approach has nothing to do with possessions and everything to do with our love for him. Okay. Well, notice those statistics. We buy food, then let nearly 40% of it go to waste. Disgrace. Americans spend more on fashion accessories than college tuition. Mm -hmm. Our children have own nearly half of the world's toys. Mm -hmm. And they're still buying more. Oh, yeah. 
and the children are playing with the boxes that the boys, the toys came in and discarding the toys. Yeah. Homes in the U.S. have more TVs than people. Interesting. Never thought about that. The average American household has $7,500 in consumer debt. So today we will consider a, a warning from Scripture about loving our possessions too much. That is what we're going to be looking at today. Notice the point. What is the point? Possessions never satisfy or last, but the love of God does. Okay. The only the love of God will last. Those possessions, you're going to leave them behind. Somebody else is going to get them and enjoy them that you spend your dollars on. Okay, we have a couple of passages to look at. Uh, the first one is First John chapter 2, verse 11, to 12 to 14. But before we read that, let me give you the setting. Toward the latter part of the first century, the Apostle John wrote the letter of First John to an unidentified group of believers who most likely lived in Asia Minor. Many Bible commentators believe John spent the latter part of his life in Ephesus from where he ministered to churches in Asia Minor. John wrote this letter to combat a group of teachers who were, who were troubling these Christians with false teachings concerning the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the setting. That's the backdrop that uh, our study is going to be up against. So let's look at uh, those first uh, verses we have in our books on page 144. Who want to take that first one? I am writing to you, little children, since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have conquered the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you have come to know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have conquered the evil one. Go ahead, key words. The evil one. This term refers to the devil or Satan as you will find in Matthew 13, 19, and 38, and Mark 4, 15. He is the adversary of God's people using temptation, deceit, and lies to lead us away from God. John wrote to three groups of people, little children, fathers, and young men. Some people take this at face value related to physical age. Others believe this referred to younger Christians and more mature Christians. And still others think John was addressing the church as a whole, since the statements he makes could be applied to any believer. However you choose to group these, John clearly had something to say for all those who follow Christ. Children, your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. You have come to know the Father. That is the starting place, the beginning of salvation. Salvation begins when we turn from our sin and self and acknowledge Jesus as Lord. As a result, we know God. Throughout this short letter, John wanted his readers to realize that they could know with assurance they belong to God. This assurance is the theme of 1 John. The apostle used the word for know repeatedly and wrote, 
I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. 5.13 Young men, you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have conquered the evil one. Because Jesus had won the victory, they could live daily knowing they too had victory. They could stand against the evil one in spiritual battle because they were strong through God's word abiding in them. When Paul described the spiritual armor of the believer, he wrote, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, Ephesians 6, 17. Fathers, you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. It is the same for the spiritually mature as it is for the young believer. Faith begins and ends with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We might feel we are children in the faith, excuse me, faith, or we may be spiritually mature, helping to nurture others in their faith. Regardless of where we are in our walk with God, we still have more progress to make. None of us has arrived. Paul would certainly be considered one of the fathers in the faith. Yet even he said his goal was to know the Lord more in Philippians 3.10. Philippians 3.12 says, Not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it, because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. You want me to stop? No, go ahead. Continue. In 1 John 2, 12-14, John set the stage by reminding the believers, both young and old, who they were in Christ. Christ's followers are those who, first and foremost, know God and love Him. So, what does 1 John 2 have to do with the problem of consumerism? Next page, last paragraph. In the next few verses, John addressed the problem of loving things. In fact, we'll see that loving the things of the world chases incom incompatible. Huh? In fact, we'll see that loving the things the world chases is incompatible with loving God. Okay, thank you. Notice he, he mentions three groups of people. Children, and of course children, immature believers, young in the faith. And then he mentions fathers, that is spiritually mature believers who have grown deep in the faith. And then he mentions young men, not mature, but not fully developed, continuing to grow in the faith and develop as disciples. Now some commentators uh, hold the view that his words in verses 12 to 14 apply to all believers because John also addressed his readers as little children. He did that many times or children, using two Greek terms, technion in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, and verse 12 and verse 28, and also uh, chapter 3, verse 7, verse 18, chapter 4, verse 4, and chapter 5, verse 21. And then he uses another word, pedion, which is, which is mentioned in chapter 2, verse 14 and verse 18. John viewed all of them as his spiritual children. So he wrote to them as a loving, concerned father. He says, little children, your sins have been forgiven you on account of his name. 
Through his sacrificial death on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for the believer's sins, past, present, and future. And then he says, Father, the fathers, you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. This could be a reference to God the Father, Genesis 1, or to Jesus, John chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. John is most likely referring to Jesus, given the background of the false teachers about the person and the work of Jesus against which John was writing. John had previously emphasized Jesus' existence as in the beginning in both this letter, that is 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, and in the gospel that he wrote, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. And so he also uh, mentions another group, young men. He says to the young men, you have conquered the evil one. Growth is a natural expectation of both physical and spiritual life, isn't it? We grow naturally, but we also grow spiritually. <clears throat> this growth can be difficult and even painful at times. These spiritual young adults understood the reality that believers are in a struggle, a tremendous struggle. They prepared themselves utilizing all of the weapons God provided for them. And we see those weapons listed in Ephesians chapter 6, <coughs> verses 18 to 10, 10 to 18. So they could be victorious in the battle as a result of using those weapons. He says, you have conquered the evil one. And so we have a group of people who have used these weapons listed in Ephesians and they've been successful. All right, which gives us impetus and encouragement that we can use these weapons and be just as effective. And notice we, we, we made a mention here of the key word as well, and that is the evil uh, Satan, the evil one, the one that we ought to always be conscious of, be aware of, and uh, make sure that we do all that is necessary according to God's word to be successful and effective against his schemes. Next we'll see John's warning to be on God against loving the world. So let's look at that passage on page 146. Who want to take that one? Anybody want to take that one? Yeah. Like that. <laughs> Okay, go ahead. <laughs> okay. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Okay. One of the most well-known verses in the Bible is John 3.16. For God so loved the world, for God so loved the world. Yet here John told us, do not love the world. The difference is in how John used the word world. Context clarifies whether he was referred to humanity, the physical earth, or an evil system under the control of Satan. So while we are to love the people of this world, even as Jesus does, 
we are not to love the evil and sinful things that surround us. In fact, John made a strikingly strong statement. We can't love the world and God at the same time. To love the world or the things in the world is worldliness, and worldliness is anything that excludes God. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John identified three ways the world entices us to seek contentment and fulfillment apart from the Father. Number one, the lust of the flesh. This phrase may force us to think first of misusing sex, but this lust is broader, broader than just sexual sin. It captures the idea of fulfilling any of our natural desires in the wrong way. For example, God gave us the desire for sex, but it's wrong to fill this desire in a way contrary to God's teaching for marital relationship. 1 Corinthians 6, 18, 20. God created us so that when we're hungry, we crave food but it's wrong to engage in gluttony or hoard food. Proverbs 23, 20 to 21. Our bodies need rest, but idleness is sin. Proverbs 15, 19, 21 seconds. Thessalonians 3, 10 to 13. Number two, the lust of the eyes. The lust of the flesh has to do with our physical appetites, but the lust of the eyes is about our mental appetites. We may think of books, movies, or any form of amusement that excites our eyes or minds. We're guilty of this when we seek to gratify our eyes and minds in ways that do not honor God. Philippians 4 8. Number three, the pride in one's possessions. We can lock anything in this category that causes us to focus attention on ourselves rather than on Christ. It can be pride or the desire for others to notice us. Either way, it is about making ourselves number one. There is nothing new. This is nothing new. Even the first sin committed included these worldly attitudes. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, the lust of the flesh, and delight to look at lust of the eyes and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom, the pride of one's possession. So she took some as fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it, Genesis 3, 6. These attitudes are all prevalent today. Our craving for stuff, materialism, reflects the eagerness to gratify our desires and then boast about our accomplishments. This is futile because these things that consume us will ultimately disappear. The world with its lust is passing away. Then what are we left with? Next page. Evaluate when you spend on pleasure and personal priorities, and it will reveal a level of worldliness and materialism. People often say, if I could just have that thing, I would be happy. 
but we can be measurable with all the finest things the world has to offer. Mm -hmm. So many people have what money can buy, but they have no peace or joy. On the other hand, the one who does the will of God remains forever. The satisfaction we seek eludes us when we consume with materialism, but contentment will follow us as we follow Christ. Okay, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Yes. yes. Okay, and so John and his warnings to believers do not love the world or the things in the world. So John was concerned about how the devil would use the world to draw believers away from God. And he's doing that with a lot of success today, sad to say. John was thinking about thinking of the values, perspectives, and concerns of the world system opposed to God. To live, to love the world is to admire or evaluate a worldview that contradicts what God has said or what he desires. To love the things of the world is to embrace those attitudes, desires, and actions that are natural for sinful humanity. Loving God and loving the world, these two types of love are mutually exclusive. Just as we cannot serve both God and money, according to Matthew 6, 24, we cannot love both the Father and the world. It just can't happen. And notice these three, uh, what, the, the, the three ways that the world entices us to seek contentment and fulfilling, fulfillment apart from the Father. Notice it began all the way back when? Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, right. Our great, great, so many times great grandparents introduced this and it's affecting us today. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of possessions. And the passage showed us how they all apply. Uh, was applicable in the, in the case of Adam and Eve in the garden. Now we missed one question, question number two. So let's go back to that and see if we can answer that. Question number two says, how has your faith deepened over the years? Anyone want to challenge answering that? How has your faith deepened over the years? God answers to our prayers. Answers to prayers? Okay. It's good to know that somebody's listening and responding, right? Good. Anyone else? I have a clearer understanding of the word, so I have more appreciation for God. Okay. Clearer understanding and deeper appreciation. Good. Anyone else? Through sickness, sickness. Through sickness? Okay. Anyone else? Different situations that you've been in, now you, you, you can trust. Mm -hmm. You have that level of trust where you know that, okay, once you put your hand in his hand, and you know, he'll work it out for you. So when you're younger, maybe you didn't realize that so much. Okay. I, I think going along with what um, Michelle has just said, uh, I go farther. I have a more relaxed approach, putting it in God's hands and, and standing back and seeing what he's going to do and mm -hmm. with anticipation now. Yeah. Because he's been faithful and he's such a perfect track record in my life and all of those around me, it's exciting mm -hmm. to uh, walk by faith and 
know, give it to him and see what he's going to do. That's right. I think it's nice too when you see something that works out better than you could even have asked him to work it out for you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a better situation. You, you can't even imagine how much better it could have been. And you let him work it out. That's right. Normal scripture says he can do more than we can ask, think, or even imagine. All right. So that 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 has a tendency, uh, definitely, to deepen our faith when we see what God is capable of doing. Um, we come to the point where we realize that we don't need to dictate to God how to answer our prayers or to tell Him what to do. God knows what is best for us at all times. So the focus then of these verses is those three uh, enticements, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride in one's possessions. People have a tendency today to boast about what they have, and we see that becoming even more and more prevalent uh, as we get close to the return of Christ. Question number three. How do we navigate the tension between enjoying our possessions and becoming consumed by them? How do we navigate the tension, and there is a tension, between enjoying our possessions and being consumed by them? By um, understanding God's Word mm -hmm. and um, choosing not to be consumed with the material things of this life, but to think Can everybody hear him? Yeah. Uh, speak up so they can hear you. Go again, start again. Um, and the question is, how do you navigate the tension between enjoying our perception and being consumed by them? Mm -hmm. And my answer is, um, knowing the truth of God's word and his instructions to us as our children, as his children, uh, not to be consumed by the material things of this life, knowing that the material things of this life is temporal, mm -hmm. it all will pass away. So we should never ever become so engulfed in the material things of this life that mm -hmm. we lose sight of what our eternal life is with Christ with God. Mm -hmm. Okay. And remember now, Satan can uh, can box these things up so nice, so attractive, that people have a tendency to think that they really need them when actually they only want them. And the passion, desire to want them grows so intense that they feel that it's a need when actually it's all it's just a want. Okay, so it's a, it's, a, it's a challenge to navigate the tension between uh, possessions so that we are not consumed by them. And there are people who are consumed by them, they don't even realize they're consumed by them. They think that they're just satisfying a need when actually they're, they're basically trying to fulfill a want. Okay, next we will, we will discover how we can discern if possessions own our hearts. Last passage. First John chapter 3 verse 16 to 18. Anyone want to take that? First John 3 16 to 18. Okay. This is how we have come to know love. 
he laid down his life for us, we should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. What does love look like? We have no greater example than Jesus Christ. He gave up the glories of his throne in heaven to live among us. He gave us his majestic rule to serve us. Oh, he, he gave up his majestic rule to serve us, and he laid down his life for us. We are also called to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. We did not give up our lives for the same reason Jesus did. We cannot, we cannot step in and take the sins of others as a sacrifice of atonement. We have other ways, though. We can sacrifice for others. Instead of being consumed with materialism, we should sacrifice our possessions for the sake of others. Jesus gave his life, and we are called to follow his example. <clears throat> we may not have to sacrifice our physical lives, but we can certainly give up material possession. Because Jesus gave so much to us, we can give to others. We need to consider how much we spend on ourselves compared with how much we give towards the needs of others and to the cause of Christ. We need to limit our consumption and increase our compassion. Love is not a matter of words. Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and truth, and in truth. Even the world recognizes this truth with, with statements like, talk is cheap, but your money is where your mouth is. Actions speak louder than words. It's easy to talk about our commitment to Christ and our willingness to sacrifice for him. But John stressed that it is our actions that truly communicate love. A while back, a family in our church lost everything in a house fire. What a joy to watch God's people step in. Different small groups came together, bought clothes for the children, gave money for Christmas presents, and helped them purchase new furniture. It was a great witness of love for Christ and love for each other. And it certainly went much further than just telling them, we'll be praying for you. So why do we let materialism get in the way of ministry? Why do we often fail to help when we have the resources to do so? In his book entitled, This Is Our Time, Trevon Wax, referred to the myth of accumulation. While we, may, while we may not believe we need stuff to be okay, we can often believe our possessions will make us happier. If you are aiming for the, for the American dream, good house, good job, good car, good family, then stuff often gets, gets you there. But if our goal is to know Christ and to show his love to others, Keeping or gaining all that stuff just gets in the way. Being more successful at work may mean longer office hours and less time at church. Climbing the social ladder may mean spending less time with those. With those, um, 
with those who encourage your walk with Christ and more time being influenced by those who are indifferent to what's God. <coughs> Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6, 21. We don't know much more than his name, but Paul made one revealing comment about a man named De Demius. Demas. Demas. Demas has deserted me since he loved his present world. 2 Timothy 4 and 10. If we let materialism and our possessions take over, we fall into the same danger Damius did. We can forsake our jobs, families, church, and even God if we don't guard against a love of the world. We experience far greater joy when we love God completely. When his love consumes us, we become a conduit to pass on his love to others. Then our possessions don't control us, but rather become a way for us to give and demonstrate Christ's love. Okay. If you look back at 149, see that uh, passage that talks about the family lost uh, in the house fire? That sounds like a passage right out of Calvary's playbook. Remember in that family over in the lost their house in the fire? We did almost, church did almost the identical thing as described here. Okay, uh, and so this is not new. We see this happening in not only our church, but many other churches probably went through the same experience. But notice, Jesus demonstrated the highest form of self-giving. A couple of points come out of the passage. That's the first one. Jesus' example should prompt us to follow his example. Okay, we have an example to follow, and that is Christ. When believers see a brother or sister in need, if we have the means to meet that need, we should do so. Don't say, just say, oh yeah, I'll pray for you. Meet the need. And then our action to meet the need speak volumes about what we believe. <clears throat> volumes. More than can be written about what we believe. Uh, it shows people that you really believe what the Bible is teaching, what the Bible says, and we are practicing it in our daily lives. Okay, um, we have a, a chart here on the board that talks about uh, consumerism in the USA. Our spending habits are leading us to accumulate more things than ever before. I don't know how many of you can see this, but I'll read it. Americans allow $165 billion of food to be wasted every year. Staggering number, isn't it? $165 billion. Wow. Stunting due to malnutrition and lack of food affects 161 million children around the world every year. Malnutrition has an impact that's negative. Enough K-cups were thrown out in 2014 to encircle the earth 12 times. According to their creator, K-cups are almost impossible to recycle. as those foam stuff that we use for foods and stuff. In 2014, Americans spent $57.4 on Black Friday weekend alone. You know what Black Friday is, right? They gave $103 billion to churches over the course of the whole year. 
The amount Americans spend in a simple weekend is more than half the total they give to churches in an entire year. Something to think about, isn't it? In America, the amount we spend on shoes, watches, and jewelry alone totals $100 billion. So we see what consumerism does, right? We see what happens when people allow materialism to consume them. Question number four. How would you describe a godly attitude toward our possessions and wealth? How would you describe a godly attitude? Meeting the needs of others. Meeting the needs of others. Okay, that's a major priority number one. Okay, we have it, we share it. We have it, we see others who don't have it, we share what we have. Then last question, number five. What can we do to help someone in need? Just offer help. Mm -hmm. Give them help. Give the help. Respond to the needs, right? We see a need, we don't just say, I'll pray for you, but we become practical practical and fulfill the need. Okay, so let's look at how we're going to flesh this out. Page... 151. Materialism is all around us. Our society thrives on the latest and greatest. Nothing is inherently wrong with having things, but they can hold us back from loving the Lord. Like make, that, make that clear now. Nothing is wrong with having things. As long as you don't let the things get in between your love and your love for God your love for the things and your love for God. Okay? Because we can use things to do a lot of good in the world. Don't we? Yeah. Yeah. Not God first, though. Mm-hmm. the things first. That's what people so do. Yeah. Three things we can do. Pray. Ask the Lord to help you love Him more than anything. Pray that others would see your love and heart for Christ through your actions. First thing we do, pray. And then secondly, evaluate. Chart the many ways you use your money. List the possessions you own and their relative value. Consider what your possessions and finances reveal about your priorities and goals in life. Is it evident that you love the Lord by what you do with what you have? And then thirdly, give. Think about tangible ways you can help someone in need. Find ways to use your possessions for the benefit of others. Give things away as necessary, as necessary as you seek to express the love of Christ to others. Three things we can do in response to our lesson this morning. What God has said to us collectively and audibly, but what also he said to us in that still small voice, because he's spoken to all of us here this morning individually through that still small voice. Consider, pray, evaluate, and give. Amen? Amen. Okay, so we are reminded this morning of the danger of holding possessions too close. Let's be intentional about how we use our possessions to meet those in need. Father, help us to follow the example of Jesus and practice self-sacrifice in meeting the needs of others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.